joy of our salvation. <laughs> you're so great and you're greatly to be praised. We thank you for this day that you've made for us. We rejoice and we are glad in it. Today as we gather together, it's a local church body to experience your presence, to hear what your word has to say to us, to receive from the anointing power and equipping to do what you've called us to do in our generation. So we rejoice not only in this day, but our day, the time that you have given us to live in, that you've called us to the kingdom for such a time as this, that we might experience all that you are and all that you have for us through a divine covenant, strengthened with mighty power in our inner man to do that which you've called us to do. <laughs> so we're thankful. We are so grateful for what you have done for us by your precious blood, what you're doing in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, what you'll do through us, through that great anointing. We thank you, Father. And now we ask you, permeate this place with that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Open up eyes, flood our hearts with light today that we might see and understand the great expectation of what you've called us to. That we might realize and recognize the riches of the glory of your inheritance for us as saints. That we might recognize the exceeding greatness of your power. That same power that raised Christ from the dead that you released towards us when he raised up from the dead. We raised with him in mighty power. Miracle working power. Show us the authoritative power that we possess. That same power that seated you at God's own right hand. Far above all principality, power, might, and dominion in every name that's named. And we might understand and know the enemy is under our feet. So we thank you. We thank you ahead of time for revelation knowledge, that kind of revelation that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And so we give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, and all the thanksgiving for what will be accomplished in every heart and in every life by your word and by your spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. Good morning, church. How are you this morning? Welcome to New Creation Church. Welcome everybody who's joining us by live stream. I'm so excited to be with you all this morning, man. God is doing great things in our generation. I believe he has something to say to us today. Why don't you look at somebody next to you and say, the life of God dwells in me and the life of God dwells in you. Therefore, you have victory in every situation, under every circumstance, and in every place. And your victory releases a fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere you go. You can be seated. Once again, welcome. It's very uh, great to be with you this morning. Praise the Lord, the body of Christ. There's no greater people on the face of the earth. Amen. As we realize what Christ has done for us and uh, the reality of a transformed life. Amen. God is doing some tremendous, tremendous things. And uh, again, so many good things happening and uh, uh, things that are, that are coming up uh, for uh, you and that God's placed gifts in the body uh, for our edification and our building up. And so Mark and Trina Hankins are going to be here in March and uh, April. Uh, I think we're uh, in a good place in April, May. Jesse Duplantis is going to be with us in uh, June. Jim Hockaday is going to be with us doing a healing meeting on that Sunday in July, our men's conference, um, uh, we're going to have the Beveers here, and then that Saturday night of the men's conference, uh, July 20th, uh, it's open to the public. We're going to have Awe of God night, uh, the tour of Awe of God with John Bevere here, so mark your calendars. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles with me to Romans, the 14th chapter. I want to get into the Word uh, today. I have a lot that I want to share with you today. Uh, really concerning this new subject that we started at ties together as we've come out of covenant connections and understanding the power of the covenant that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, not only with him, but our family covenant, our church family covenant, those connections, how vitally important they are and the recognition and realization of some powerful things that take place. And in light of all that, as we said last week, you know, entering into uh, this year, some words 
words that were spoken to the church about how tumultuous that it would be in the last days, in the times that we live in, yet at the same time, the word said the church would be a light. The church would be a really a stabilizing force. The Bible says that the church is that restraining force. At the same time, if we don't know that, if we don't understand some things about who we are and what God has planned for us right now in this time, we could be overtaken by those things. And so even Jesus speaking of the last of the last days there in Matthew chapter 24, where uh, uh, Rick Renner had spoken to us, you know, at the beginning of the year, um, where he had said those things about the last of the last days, Jesus said to him who endures till the end, so he's not talking about people who are just sitting around getting beat up and, and, and outlasting it. That word endure means to stay with it. Those who can really persevere and move through as they should, right, persevere to the end, will really inherit or see what this eternal life is all about. And so the things that we are talking about, I don't care if you're old, you've been in church forever, if you're just coming into the body of Christ, if you're a teenager or young person, we're entering into times that if we start to understand who we are in Christ, what has been given to us, the authority that we have, praise the Lord, when things begin to shake, we're, as we said, we're going to be on this firm foundation. And so as we opened up, you know, last week in Ephesians, it says, he, you, speaking of you, everybody say me. me, you, each one of us, he made alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we were separated from God, the life of God, because of trespass and sin. He said, you, he made alive. Then he explains to us, you know, just paraphrase, you can go there, Ephesians chapter 2, 1, and, and look at it. He said, now, each one of us were dictated to by the course of this world. Whatever the course is going, and that is directed by the prince of the power of the air. In other words, he said, everybody who is, falls under Adam's disobedience or Adam's sin, the offspring, the sons of disobedience, they are under the flow and the course of this world. They don't even know it. They think they're doing their own thing, but they're really just doing what everybody else is doing. Right? If you remember back to when you were a teenager and you had rules uh, in your house, your parents had rules in your house. Everybody has a little bit different, you know, but generally teenagers grew up and they're like, I want to be my own person. I don't want to be a part of the family. I want to be my own person. But actually what they were saying is I want to be like all my friends. Right? That's really, they, they weren't going to be their own person. They were going to want to fit in. And if they were part of the family and the family had all these rules, they might not fit in. Right? So again, we think, well, I'm doing my own thing, but the enemy knows I'm just fitting you into the course of this world. He said it was for everybody. And he said, don't get, don't, don't get too haughty, you who made alive, because we were all in that condition, but God. Somebody say, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of and in order to satisfy his great love. See, that covenant love, because it existed, it doesn't go away. It will never fail. It will never cease being. When the objects of God's love were trapped in trespass and sin, God could not be satisfied because he loved you. So in order to satisfy his love, he sent Jesus. So that by his grace, not by our works, you could be saved. Saved from what? Saved from that dominion of sin. That course of this world that dictated your thinking, your actions, even when you didn't know it. Even when you thought you were doing your own thing, you were being a puppet of what sin and transgression had done. It would continue to take you away from God and not to God. And so God set a place where uh, through Jesus Christ... Sin should no longer govern or set the course for your life or my life or anybody who would believe. So Romans 14, 17, our foundational text, it says, for the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
Wow. So the kingdom of God. So often we are in a situation where we're thinking the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, is way off out there beyond outer space somewhere. But it's not because he's not talking about a territory or a space there. Let me read you this definition of the kingdom of God. The concept of a kingdom of God is not primarily one of space, territory, or politics as in a national kingdom but instead one of kingly rule, reign, and sovereign control. The kingdom of God is the realm where God reigns supreme. Jesus Christ is king. In this kingdom, God's authority is recognized and his will is obeyed. So it's a sphere. It's something that, he, that Jesus said is in you through the new birth. And we're going to try to get into that just a little bit, but our idea of the kingdom, in other words, the reign of God or the rule of God that belongs to us, the kingdom of God, then then it is governed by, you know, we think, well, now I got to try to do all this stuff. I got to do all these things. I got to make this happen. And it gets it to really cause a stress, but it says the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the realm where God has dominion is righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, come on. We're just going to try to break this down a little bit, and it'll take a little while to to wrap our minds around it and to wrap our hearts around it. So it makes a distinct difference. I'm very excited because it may seem elementary, but if we get really the next portion a little, just a little bit more revealed to us, you'll begin to dominate through righteousness in areas that have hindered you for a long, long time. For a long, long time. Things that you you get frustrated with, and you may even say out of your mouth, this is just not right. You ever had that happen? You knew it, but it kept happening. This is just not right. Well, good. When we understand righteousness, we'll get to the point of saying, you know what? That was not right, but this is right. This is right. There's something that's so powerful about righteousness that when we understand it, we'll really begin to rule and reign with him. In Romans, the fifth chapter, in the first verse, uh, it says this. I like it just because it brings these components together. And really throughout the book of Romans, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Romans. But it connects with so many other epistles, so many other writings, really connects with the things that Jesus talked to us about, because he talked a lot about the kingdom. We said last week, all the four gospels are Jesus always talking about the kingdom. And so, you know, we get to the point even where he said, you know, seek first the kingdom. People think, well, what am I supposed to do? Seek heaven? No, you're supposed to seek the realm within you, the place where you are, where God actually has the rule, where Jesus is actually king, where he has his domain within you. So he says, therefore, having been justified, you can highlight that, underline that word. We're going to get into that, dig into that a little bit today. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, there's that peace, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. Into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there you see righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. See, I didn't see righteousness. Well, we'll get into that. Justified. Praise the Lord. Righteousness, peace, and joy. You'll see it over and over and over again. And so we were redeemed with a distinct purpose. We were redeemed with this distinct purpose. Revelation chapter 5. Some of this we went over last week, but I want to lay the groundwork and move into some things. Like I said, we have to unpack this. Last two weeks, you know, I've come home from uh, just studying and praying about this. And uh, told Pastor Tasha, I'm like, man, there's just a, there's so much in this. And she said, well, you know how you eat an elephant, don't you? I said, never eaten one. (laughs) She said, one bite at a time. So we're just going to try to take it one bite at a time. 
Amen? And uh, if we go too fast and you just get too, you know, you're chewing too much at one time, we'll just try to slow down. That might be hard for me. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. He said, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, that being Jesus, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So right here, we begin to see it open up that we were never designed, never designed, never created to be reigned over by sin. Never was God's design. We were created to have dominion, not be dominated. Now we have to, it's very important that we start to get that into our thinking because as we get into this, we're going to see how things changed and it's very difficult for us to really, we can go, whoo, yes, I'm in charge. But down on the inside, there's a ringing. You ain't really in charge. Right? Somebody else is in charge. And so the right person in charge makes all the difference in the world. Praise the Lord. So you all with me? All right, so turn over to Romans, the first chapter. Romans, the first chapter. I love this. Paul said, for I am not, verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in what? In the gospel message. In the gospel message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, the faith that it talked about in the Old Testament moving to Jesus Christ in the cross was one faith, but the faith, the gospel, takes us in revelation of righteousness to another faith of living out this righteousness that has been revealed by the gospel. So a lot of people are ashamed of preaching the gospel because of the kickback. They're, they don't want to shame, uh, uh, because what will people say? What will people say? They, they might not believe it. And they might say, well, what about, what about God? If he loves people, uh, why is he going to send people to hell? And we get all jammed up and anxious about the questions that are going to be asked because why? The enemy portrays to people that God is unjust that he's sending people to hell. But if we would understand the gospel, the gospel has power to bring people to salvation, the gospel itself. We just have to be messengers. It's alive. It's, it's alive unto God. It'll penetrate past their soul right into their heart. We're messengers. But also when that gospel, the revelation of that gospel goes, it's not that God is unjust sending people to hell. Actually, the rightness of God is revealed in the gospel, how people were going to hell because of Adam's sin, but God loved them so much, he sent Jesus to save them. And now all of a sudden, the tables are turned on the devil, that God wasn't the bad one sending people to hell. He was the one that sent Jesus to save everybody from hell. And now we are presenting people with a choice to either live eternity apart from God and the torment that that brings or to live eternity in fellowship with God, which begins right now when you make him Lord of your life. Fellowship with God. So the gospel, the gospel, we shouldn't be afraid to share the gospel with people. Because whatever their questions are, if we bring the message and we bring it with confidence that righteousness is going to be revealed in what I'm telling you, and there's power in what I'm saying, then I leave it to the Holy Spirit to work it in the hearts of people, to bring understanding and faith to their hearts. But he needs somebody to tell them. 
And so we're going to be emboldened. I believe we're going to be emboldened as we talk about this, emboldened to share the message, knowing that we're not bringing condemnation to people. We're not bringing judgment to people. We are bringing an opportunity to experience salvation and fellowship with their creator. We're bringing an opportunity for them to rule and to reign over all the things that have been dogging their tracks all these years. We're presenting to them a way to be delivered from addiction, a way to be healed from brokenness. We're bringing to them a way to be healed of sickness and disease. We're bringing a way for their mind and the torment of mental illness to be snapped around and a soundness of mind to be brought to them and a clarity of thinking to be brought to them. We are bringing the greatest opportunity in their life. We're presenting it to them. We are not forcing them into anything, but we are bringing the greatest thing known to man, to people who are suffering, to are hurting. But we have to get a bold confidence in that. Whatever their challenge is, is not upon me. It's answered through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Woo. So the gospel, Romans chapter 6. Praise the Lord. All right. So this place, I love this. I love this area where Paul is talking to them because we'll get into this just a little bit, the grace of God. He just finishes talking about uh, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And really what he was talking about, you know, I wasn't there, but when you read it, he was talking about the sin of Adam encompassed the whole world. The sin of Adam spread to all men, but Jesus came with grace. And so where sin was abounding in the whole earth, grace came and abounded more to salvation. And instead of going, whoo, how powerful, they said, So, since where sin abounds, grace is much more bound. If we want to see grace, we should sin. (laughs) That's the question they ask. Like, and Paul has to be going like, what? I just wrote all that, and you said, so we can sin a little? So this is his comment. He decides, I've just explained what happened in Adam and in Christ. And I brought one of the most powerful statements you could ever know. Sin was abounding to destroy, to bring condemnation and eternal judgment to the heart of men. But Jesus came that grace would set you free. Not what you could do, but what Jesus already did to set you free. And you said, but we could sin a little? He said, now I'm going to have to preach the gospel to you again. (laughs) He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. What a misunderstanding. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know? See, that was the problem. It's still the problem. We don't quite yet know. Because the moment the revelation comes and we know, whoo, sin dominating any area of our life is over. It's over. You can hear it in the room right now. Hmm. Come on. There's doubt in this room. We hope to clear that up. And if we do, you are going to have your foot on the neck of a king. You are going to feel like, listen, I'm done with it. We're fixing to rule and to reign with him. So listen to what he says. He said, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. Highlight that, underline that, make a note. He said, listen, there's a newness of life. 
The old life is going to be gone. Why? Because you died to it, and it was buried. But the glory of the Father created something brand new. Something brand new. Come on, we're going to let that settle in a little bit. Because I know you're like, come on, get on with it. I know that. Really, do you know that? Because about noon, you're going to do something old, not new. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're going to be tempted to do something old when you do something new. Instead of raising a finger, you'll raise a hand and say, praise God. We didn't have an accident. Because the old man will raise a finger, but the new man will say, praise God, we didn't have an accident. And Lord, help them. Because the way they're driving, they're liable to have an accident. You say, that sounds ridiculous. No, there's something in the new man. You might not just say that, but there's a difference that if we just go, oh, I know, newness of life. No, he means it. Newness of life. He said, you must not know this because you still wanted to sin so you could see grace. He said, grace is so abounded, but you must not know how much it abounded. Because there's a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Somebody say, done away with. with. Not reserved somewhere for when I need help from the old man. When somebody makes me upset. No, he said, done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin or under its dominion. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for everybody, for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So if you get this, how many of you get this? About half of you. But see, this is the crux. If you don't get this, you need to go back and meditate on this. Because if you don't get this, and you said, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died, that God raised him from the dead, so I'll call him Lord. Then if you didn't raise your hand, you just said, I don't believe in my heart because I don't understand what he just said. So you can't possibly believe it and then make Jesus Lord. You're just saying words. But if you know this, that Jesus died and he was buried and he died to sin, he bore my sin, my sickness, my disease. And when he died, I died with him. And when he raised from the dead, death no longer, sin and death no longer has dominion over him. I get it. That's what I believe. That's why I want you to be the master. See, now salvation will start to take hold because you're looking at a newness of life, not just a destination. But remember, the kingdom is not a territory, a destination. The king is wherever the king is ruling, where he's reigning. So he says, if you get it and you believe it, then likewise, or just like this, you also Reckon yourself, reckon yourself, count yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dead to sin. Dead to sin. How many believe that Jesus is like, man, I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble, and I'm going to have to go back to the earth, and I'm going to have to die again. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to die. No, he died once, and he raised from the dead, and he ain't never dying again, and he's not afraid of death. He's not afraid it's coming back on him. He died, and he raised from the dead. He says, so when you reckon yourself dead to sin, you're not afraid of it anymore. 
Sorry, I'm not angry. I'm just excited. <laughs> and I know I can be intense. And I know I have a microphone, so I don't need to yell. Just the way that it is. So he said, therefore, do not let sin, you do not let sin reign or have dominion in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, you are under grace. He said right there, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. That God was so righteous that he took your sin and my sin and he put it on Jesus to satisfy the justice that he set forth. And then he raised him from the dead. Why? Because it wouldn't be right to leave him there. It was on our behalf. And he set everything aright. Righteousness revealed right there in the gospel. Yet we go through that all the time. We could read that. You might say, I've read that before. Yet we still let sin reign in our mortal body. We're not wrecking in ourselves to be dead to sin, alive unto God. Man. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, we see that righteousness is a key component of the kingdom, of reigning in life. He says, for, by, for if by one man's sin offense uh, for by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. See, when you receive the gift of righteousness, it changes everything. When you receive that understanding and the revelation of righteousness, you start to reign in life with or through Jesus Christ. And when we start to understand and break down righteousness, if we get a revelation of it, it will be impossible for sin to reign over you anymore. To reign over me anymore. Say, hum, there you go. You think you're never going to sin? I did not say that. But it will not dominate areas of my life. I didn't say I would be mistake-free, but I would begin to understand and never yield to the voice that says, you cannot help it. You tried. I tried my best, but I couldn't stop it. No, it won't dominate you anymore. And we might have to take four or five runs at this till Jesus tarries. But we're going to take a good run at it this next few weeks. Because how many of you want to reign in life? Yeah. One thing I hate is losing when you don't have to. You know, uh, we've been watching basketball a lot this year because some, some of our, our young people are playing basketball. And so lots of unforced errors cost you the game. Unfortunately, in Christianity, we have a lot of unforced errors where the enemy gets an advantage. But if we can learn a little bit, we'll have less unforced errors. Praise the Lord. So we're going to just take a moment here, and we're going to talk about the difference, what really the contention is, is the sin consciousness that exists in man that is opposed to righteousness consciousness. And if we can begin to see how this developed, this sin consciousness developed in us, but what Jesus did to break the power of that, and we become more conscious of our righteousness than we do of sin, sin will no longer have dominion. 
But see, religion will always fight against it. Religion, as you see it, you'll read about it. People will slam our kind of church because they'll say, who do you think you are? This righteousness talk. The Bible says there's none righteous. I'm glad they asked that. They said that because we're going to address it. The Bible does say that, but you got to put it in context. And we're about to do that. So if we read on just a little bit, talking about sin consciousness. Just to read on here in, in, in Romans chapter 6, he begins to explain something to us. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are, un, we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. There's this sin consciousness in man. He's trying to explain the gospel. And so he says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And they said, so we should sin to see grace? He's like, no, let me explain the gospel to you. This is such a hold and revelation of sin consciousness that the law brings. That then once again, they said, okay, so we're not under the law. We're under grace. Sin shouldn't have dominion over us. So we can go ahead and sin a little because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Now, listen, I love this. So this is what Kenneth Weiss says about this. He says, Paul has answered his listener's question regarding the proposed habitual yieldedness of a believer to the evil nature by showing that that was a mechanical impossibility, considering the way the believer's inner mechanical setup was arranged by God. The power of indwelling sin broken and the divine nature implanted. And his listeners come back with another question. So in the beginning, he said, listen, we can't sin for grace to abound, right? So that when they said, should we sin that grace would abound? They say, do we continue habitually in sin? And he said, no, you died to sin once and for all. So then they come back with this question. So at the beginning, that first, should we sin that grace may abound. They were talking about, do we continue sinning so we can see grace abounding? He said, no, it's an impossibility mechanically how God puts you, set you up that if you receive Christ into your life, it breaks the power of sin. It breaks it. Just how you're wired, how God created you, once you receive the life of God, the mechanisms in you spiritually break the power of sin so it should no longer have dominion. So then their question uh, comes back. He says, in effect, well then, since grace makes it possible for the believer to sin habitually, impossible, excuse me, for the believer to sin habitually like he did before he was saved, may we Christians live a life of planned occasional sin. You see how deep-rooted the sin consciousness is? Is at first they're like, so to see grace, we keep sinning. He said, no, this is what Christ did. So sin no longer has control habitually over your life. So they said, well, but we're not under the law, so we could have some occasional sin. I know none of you have ever thought that way. But let's be honest. Since we are not under the law, the uncompromising rule of the law, of law, but under the lenient scepter of grace. So it explains here that verse 1, it was really talking about habitual, continual sin. But in this one, the word is really a single act, a single act of sin. So he goes on to say, Arthur S. Way, in his excellent translation and paraphrase of the Pauline epistle, has read this man's mind aright when he speaks of the uncompromising rule of law and the lenient scepter of grace. The man simply did not know grace. See, this is what we've dealt with over about the past 15 or 20 years. A preaching of grace that is lenient, and you can still have occasional sin, and grace covers it. But Paul addressed this, so you can see how the sin consciousness and how the enemy works. This is 2,000 years ago, yet we're still looking for an out for at least occasional sin, and we thought grace allowed it. But in fact, 
No. Law is uncompromising, but grace is never lenient. It is far stricter than law ever could be. It is far a far greater deterrent of evil than law ever was. A half dozen motorcycle policemen with their motors tuned up are a far greater deterrent to speeding than any number of placards along the road indicating speed limit. How many of you, just, just let's make it real, how many of you are cruising a few miles an hour over the speed limit, because you know the speed limit, but that car sitting in the median, whoa, you may even not be going over the speed limit, but not paying attention, you see that car in the middle of the median, you still slow down, why, because his presence is far more effective than the sign. Okay, let's read on. I love this. I'm just reading this to you because I couldn't have said it any better. The Holy Spirit indwelling the believer takes notice of the slightest sin and convicts him of it. Whereas law could act only generally and then only when the conscience of the individual cooperated with it, grace not only forgives, but teaches. So the question, should we go ahead and sin because we're under grace, occasional sin? Because we're not under the law, we're under grace? He said, no, grace is not that, that, that lenient thing. Grace comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And at the slightest act of disobedience or desire to go with the flesh, the Holy Spirit says, no. And if we'll keep a yieldedness to that grace, we'll realize, man, if I listen to him, every temptation, every desire to sin, there will be a warning. There will be that idea that when I'm going down the road and I'm fixing to speed up, oop, there's that policeman in the median. Every time when I'm thinking I'm just going to go with my flesh, ooh, there's the Holy Spirit. Not condemning, but teaching and guiding. Come on, it's powerful. It's powerful. So he said there's this place where this sin consciousness begins to rule. He said, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves or you were under the dominion of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from the dominion or slavery of sin, you became slaves or came under the dominion of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you present your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He said, listen, when you were under sin, you weren't thinking about righteousness because it didn't lead you that way. He said, but what fruit did you have than in the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So he said, listen, there's a sin consciousness in us. But the sin consciousness will always drive you in a way that will separate you from God. It will govern you. It will dominate your life. Whenever you give place to it, it will seek to have dominion and keep you going. As the, you know, the, the old timers used to say, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. 
but yet it gets down in our consciousness that I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And so we have to begin to understand this plan of justification, of justification. So uh, in Romans, the third chapter, Romans, the third chapter, again, this is the consciousness of sin. This is every man's condition under Adam's fall. Every man's condition under Adam's fall. And this is where people say, you can't be righteous. It says right here. It says in verse 10, starts in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none. They have all turned aside. They have all become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But he's about to go into but God. Whew. Thank God. Thank God. So this is explaining the sin consciousness of man. So I want to read from this one writer. He says, man, this is talking about man as he is without Christ. Man has no approach to God. The sense of condemnation has given him an inferiority complex that makes him a coward. It robs him of faith in himself, in man, in God, and in his word. The sin consciousness holds him bondage. Right? You ever had a place where you're just like, everybody's a mess. I don't trust anybody. I can't trust God. I can't trust anybody because of things that have happened. It's down in you. It's a sin consciousness that God wants to set us free from. He has no right to approach God. He knows he's not good enough to pray and have his prayers answered. He does pray. If he does pray, it's the prayer of desperation. This has led him into philosophy. He could no more keep away from the subject of God and religion than a hungry man can keep away from God. The sense of guilt, inferiority, failure, and weakness makes him reason, and that reasoning we call philosophy. Because of this, philosophers eliminated God entirely from their philosophy. To them, God was a great mass mind without any brain center, without any personality. In, his philosoph in their philosophy, they also eliminate Satan. If there be no Satan, then there can be no sin. If there's no sin, then there's no sin consciousness. There would be, they, this would be fine if it were true. But it is just sense knowledge seeking a way of escape. Then there would be no heaven because there is no life after death. Man floats out into a universal mind and is absorbed by it. There is no resurrection of the body, no judgment. Man simply disintegrates and becomes a part of the great whole. This is but the dream of man who could not find God with his senses. So in other words, there's a consciousness. I said the problem, there, there's sin consciousness. There is the person who doesn't know God, but then there is the believer who hasn't matured in the understanding of righteousness, so he kind of falls back to this idea. And Paul tells the, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this same thing where there's a debate about the resurrection of the dead. And he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what am I doing withstanding all the persecution and everything that I'm doing to preach the gospel to you? And then he brings a philosophy of man that, that was prevalent at the day of the pagans of the day. He said, listen, if there is no resurrection of the dead, this is their philosophy. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So the party spirit that's in the world, Peter addressed this as well. We might as well just party hardy. We might as well get all the gusto we can out of life because when we die, it's all over. And a lot of Christians believe that way. Because they're not really settled 
in righteousness and eternal life. He said, now listen. He said, you've developed, he's talking to Corinthians, he said, you've developed this philosophy and you're sinning. So what did he say? He said, you awake unto righteousness and stop sinning. So he told the Corinthians, he said, you've fallen into philosophies that are set because of sin consciousness of man without knowing righteousness, without knowing eternal life. Even though you say you accepted Jesus, this predominant idea of the consciousness of sin and its dominion still is trying to work in you. He said, you have to awaken. One of the great awakenings of our time should be the awakening to righteousness. And when we awaken to righteousness, wow, things are going to change. Things are going to change. So he says, to sin consciousness can be traced the reason for practically every spiritual failure. It destroys faith, destroys the initiative in the heart. It gives to man an inferiority complex. He's afraid of God. He's afraid of himself. He's ever searching to find someone that can pray the prayer of faith for him. He has no sense of his own legal right to stand in the Father's presence without condemnation. The inferiority complex that is bred of sin consciousness is faced everywhere in the church. Wow. Not in the church. Dear Lord, help us. Not in the church. So in order to understand righteousness a little bit, we have to understand Justification. All right, just give me a minute here. Justification. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, he just gave the condition of man, but he said, now the righteousness of God apart from the law, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, his righteousness, his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in God. His righteousness, his righteousness. Why is that important? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, his righteousness, not our own righteousness, his righteousness. So in order to get righteousness, to understand righteousness, we have to understand justification. So the term justify means to declare righteous, means to declare righteous. It does not necessarily imply that the one declared righteous is righteous. In fact, it assumes the case of the sinner that he is not, in the case of the sinner, he is not righteous. It is the ungodly that God justifies. It's the ungodly that he justifies. But he recognized, not in himself, but in the person of his substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is regarded his, Jesus Christ's righteousness, is regarded as ours. And for his sake, we are treated even as he is. So listen to this. this I've got to find that. Here we go. So A.B. Simpson, in his book, uh, his commentary, Christ in the Bible, he helps us with justification. He says, there is such a thing in human courts as condemning a man to save him. A wise lawyer, when he perceives that his client cannot uh, prove his innocence, will always advise him to plead guilty and throw himself upon the clemency of the court. Mercy cannot be exercised until guilt is confessed. And so God has, God has to prove man guilty in order to save him. The first two chapters of Romans are God's fearful indictment against the Gentile 
and the Jew. And he finally sums up the whole case by pronouncing both Jew and, Greek, and Gentile under sin and laying them prostrate and guilty before God with every mouth stopped and every excuse silenced. He begins to reveal the plan of salvation through the atonement and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So he gives some examples of what this would look like. He said, once a French prison, once in a French prison, a Russian prince, through the prerogative of Napoleon, was permitted to pardon a convict. So he proceeded to question the different men he met with a view to finding someone worthy of his clemency. But every man professed to be entirely innocent and indeed greatly wrong and unjustly punished. At last he found one man who was qualified to receive forgiveness. The only guilty man in all the prison. And he had nothing to plead for himself but frankly confessed his unworthiness and acknowledged that he deserved all punishment that he had received. The prince was deeply touched by his humility and penitence. And he said to him, I have brought you, I have brought your forgiveness. And in the name of your emperor, I pronounce you a free man. You are the only man I have found in all this place ready to acknowledge his guilt and take the place where mercy could be extended. This is the place that God is bringing men to. And when he gets them there, he loves to lift them up to his bosom and pronounce upon them not the sentence of condemnation, but of acquittal and forgiveness. See, when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. When they said, how do we receive this gift? He said, repent. He said, that acknowledgement of sin puts you in the place of being declared righteous. You can't declare yourself righteous. You can't do enough righteous. But when you humble yourself and lay yourself down before God and say, I'm guilty. I deserve everything that's coming my way. And he says, listen, you might deserve that, but I have sent somebody. I give you and I bring you forgiveness right now. See, when we go like, I didn't do that much, but I'm just trying to get to heaven. He can't really bring justification. But he's going to declare you righteous. Here's another real quick story. In the beautiful allegory of man's soul in the book, Holy War, written by John Bunyan, we have an account of the surrender of the garrison to King Emmanuel. They resisted as long as they could, but beleaguered and starving, they were finally compelled to give up the conflict and yield themselves to the mercy of the conqueror. His answer was that every one of them must come forth into his uh, presence with chains upon their neck and crying, we are guilty and worthy of death. And so in great humility and fear, they marched forth from the city gates and threw themselves at his feet. They expected the severest punishment for they had resisted to, bitter end, to a bitter end and knew that they deserved nothing but death. But as soon as they had echoed their humble confession, King Emmanuel ordered the trumpet of the herald to proclaim in the hearing of all his camp that they were freely pardoned through his mercy and restored to his favor. That their city should be rebuilt should become his own royal capital. And he treated them with peculiar favor and that they should be adopted as the children of the king. They were overwhelmed with astonishment and burst out in tears of gratitude and shouts of praise. Yes, this is the glorious paradox of divine mercy. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he, might, he may have mercy on them all. The passage before us unfolds with extraordinary force. He said, listen, this is the plan of salvation, that we don't try to prove that we're good enough. 
but we humble ourselves and say, sin has sought to destroy my life and I've been a part of it. God, I humble myself before you. I believe that you died for my sin. That God raised you from the dead. And he declares you righteous. Not us ourselves. He declares you righteous. He said, now what everything destroyed as you were walking in sin, I will rebuild and it will be mine and you will become my children and my heirs. So to understand righteousness, and again, trying to wrap this up here for this week, for this week. See, sin conscious, you say, wow, man, that just sounded like sin consciousness. Pow, 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 I have to admit it. You are conscious of sin. The key to release of that is the admission of sin, of the guilt and the shame that it's imposed upon your life. And understanding that I can't do anything to be righteous in and of myself, but I lay this all before him humbly. Declare I am a sinner. And I plead for the forgiveness and mercy. And he says, I've already done this. I've had mercy on you. And that that place of propitiation, that mercy seat is where my mercy triumphs over judgment. And you've realized the judgment. You've felt the judgment of sin, the condemnation that is brought upon your life, the shame and the guilt. And now you've bowed down. And this is the place of acknowledgement that mercy triumphs over judgment. And when it does, I lift you back up. And the moment I lift you back up, sin is gone. Guilt is gone. Shame is gone. Wipe your mind clean. There is no more consciousness of sin for I have redeemed you and I've made you righteous so your sin consciousness is before kneeling before him but when you get up from that kneeling place you are free from sin you are no longer a sinner bound by sin you have been made and declared righteous by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You've been declared righteous by the God of the universe. He was just in justifying you. This idea of condemnation looms big over the church, but if we'll break it and realize, I'm not talking about haughtiness. I'm not talking about they're going, I'm right, I can do it. No, you realize in the humility, there is no way without his pronunciation, without his declaration, I could ever say I'm righteous because it's not mine. It's his, and I wish we could get to it. And we will next week. Sorry, there's a lot here to unpack. One bite at a time. Tasha's like, come on, chew this up and swallow. Let's not take another bite today. <laughs> Why don't you stand up? Father, we thank you. We glorify you. We magnify you. We're so honored. Humbled at the revelation of what you have done for us something we could never do for ourselves. No matter how hard we would try to be good enough to prove we got it, we could never do it ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming sin for us. Not just taking our sin, you became sin us that we might become the righteousness we might become the righteousness of God open our eyes to see that as we walk away from this place to realize our freedom from sin the consciousness that's been there that we become more conscious things have been set right. Sin's been forgiven. We've been made righteous.
minister to every heart in life. That truly as we sang at the beginning, for each and every one at whatever place they're at, there will be breakthrough by a spirit of wisdom and revelation. A breakthrough to never return to that place where that sin, that habit, that thought, that feeling, that brokenness would ever again dominate, control, enslave any part of any life here. Come upon each one, anoint them, reveal to them the righteousness of God. That our consciousness of that would become so clear that through that we reign in life. And we reign over the circumstance of life. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, praise the Lord. Just before we go, I know we're a little bit late here. You don't know Jesus. Man, this is this is the moment. This is the time. Just slip your hand up real quick. I want to pray with you. Slip it up high if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. See these hands in Jesus' name. Don't know Jesus. If you're watching, don't know Jesus. That acceptance of him, the gospel. He died, he raised from the dead. When you accept him, you immerse yourself in him. You die to sin, you raise, and life becomes brand new. Because of his grace, his righteousness. So if you're watching, you're here today, your heart's been moved. Let's just pray this prayer together. Say, Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And I believe in my heart that you died for my sin. God raised you from the dead. That I might be declared justified. I receive that. And I ask you to forgive me and wash me with your blood and be the Lord of my life. I receive you in as Lord of my life today. Thank you for saving my life, redeeming my life from destruction, and pronouncing me righteous. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. If you prayed that prayer and you're online, please go to our website, share your story with us about receiving Jesus. If you're here, you made that decision, come up. The altar workers will be up here to give you a, a few little mini books to help you along your way. And if you need prayer for anything else, the altar workers will be up here to pray with you. Say as we go, what God did in Christ Jesus far exceeds any damage done to me by Adam's fall. You can be dismissed. Make it a great day. We'll see you at six o'clock tonight. Six.